Well, I bring you greetings from Community of Faith Bible Church, and I am very thankful uh, not only to be here in the gracious invitation that Pastor Steve gave to me and Ed uh, to share with you all a very controversial but very critically important uh, conversation. I am just thankful for you all as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going to happen uh, after the George Floyd incident. I think it, it just rattled me personally just watching that, uh, and, and I felt it very deeply. Um, but, but I was stunned at how my Asian brothers and sisters that I know in the Lord personally uh, began to reach out to me. Um, uh, Pastor Kim Kira uh, reached out to me and others uh, and wanted just to have a conversation. Bobby, how is this, this affecting you? And what are you thinking about all this? And so I literally, this year, I think this might be the fifth predominantly Asian American church that I have had this conversation with. And we videotaped them and recorded them. And it just encouraged me that my brothers and sisters are reaching out to me up in the hood, like, hey, Bobby, how is this affecting you? And I was thankful for that. And when Pastor Steve reached out to me and Ed, uh, just so you all know, he is a great leader. Uh, this is a difficult, very controversial conversation. So he vetted us fully. Uh, you all haven't had that chance to, to vet me. So I want to tell you a little bit about what perspective you're going to hear. I am very eclectic. Uh, I am a descendant of slaves on um, both sides of my family. Um, my mother's side, uh, Marsha Dillahunt, my great-great-great-grandfather, died in a key battle in the Civil War. Um, my father's side, Stephen Scott, when he was free from slavery, he purchased land somehow, and there's a lot of stories about how he was able to do that. Uh, our oral tradition has kind of been lost on that point. But he bought a plot of land and built a church on it. They're standing today. It's going through a few different renovations. I get chill bumps when I'm standing there in North Carolina at the church that my great-great-great-grandfather, former slave, uh, built. And I was born in 1964, uh, so I'm literally the first generation of African-Americans that have all the legal rights of an American citizen. Everyone before me grew up on the back of buses, on the Jim Crow laws, and you can't eat here and you can't go there, or, or were formerly slaves. And I was raised in Newark, New Jersey in the 60s. It was the first city with a, a black mayor, and it was one of the first cities that had a race riot. And I lived through that. Just the tension of racialized America was one of the first experiences that I had uh, in Newark, New Jersey. My school was all black. It was a predominantly uh, African-American city. And then in the 70s, my dad, to get me out of Newark and all the trouble and danger that I was in, my, my idol at the time was the local gang leader, and I carried a knife before I was 10 as long as my sock. Uh, so my dad wanted to get me out of there, so he moved us to Virginia. And it was just like the movie Remember the Titans. Did you see that? So I grew up on the black side of town. We played, our school was 50% white, 50% black. We played football together, and after practice, the white guys went left and we went right. We were friends, but we just naturally segregated. And then in the 80s, my, parent, my, my dad moved out to California. I, he transferred with a telephone company. And when we came out here, the Lord saved me my second year in college. And I'm at UCLA, and I'm getting discipled by an Old Testament Semitic scholar. Uh, he's a president of a Bible college now, and he discipled me. And I, he gave me a love for the academic side of Christianity. So when I enter issues like this, I like to hear both sides, and I want to listen, and I'm not opposed to people disagreeing or asking hard questions. I love that. I think it helps us 
to be to get things right more than more than it's important to try to be right is to get the issue right and you have to hear both sides to do that um, and then the Lord because I met Christians at UCLA who were part of a really fundamentalistic conservative church I went there uh, for several years I met this predominantly white really fundamental hyper conservative church and then the Lord drew me to a seminary where there's very conservative evangelical uh, seminary. So that's my background and my training. Uh, when I graduated from seminary, I wanted to go home. So I went right to the middle of South Central, a block, a major city block north of where the LA riots started, and pastored there for five years until the Lord merged us with the church in Watts, and that's where Ed and I met. We served together in Watts for uh, some 12 years together. Um, so what I want to do today is I, I want to approach a topic that's very difficult to talk about, but we can talk about it because it's in the Bible. And I wanna, I'm going to address it from the perspective of a biblical theologian. That's what I am by training. And the conversation I want us to have, I want us to talk about who are we? Just a little thought experiment. So if you were sitting in a room, people you, that didn't know you, and they would ask you, who are you? How would you describe yourself? I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a teacher, I'm an engineer, I'm a... How would you describe yourself? And I'm convinced that one of the problems that we're having in this conversation and why it keeps deepening and why we keep finding ourselves drifting further and further apart is that we aren't answering that question as biblically as we should. And so with the time I have, I want to deal with our identity crisis by looking at some photos. I want to go back to the family album and look at four photos, pictures that describe and, and show us who we really are. And, I, and, I, and, and this is the authoritative definition of who we are. And so I want us to go to the Bible. In fact, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to invite you to read the fuller context. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 in your hearing, and from these verses we'll look at four photos, some family photos of who we are. I think that it will help us deal with the racialized tension and divisions that we're having today in our society. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Will you bow with me as I first pray? Father, thank you for gathering us together as your sons and daughters to hear your word. Bless us in the hearing of it and equally bless us in the doing of it. In Christ's name, I pray. Um, in verse 9, we're given a first photo and hopefully you caught it and you see it there. The word of God tells you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you are a chosen race, that God selected you. And in selecting you, by his grace, what God has done in you and to you is he's made you, what I'm going to call the first photo, a new race. That's stunning. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ represents an entirely new race on the planet Earth. 
And the question that I think we should be asking, why a new race? And I'm going to give you two answers. And I want to, here's my biblical theologian coming out. I want us to answer that question by looking at the story of the Bible. So turn with me to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to see from the text of Genesis, why is it that God is creating a new humanity? In Genesis chapter 1, you can read the context, verse 26 through 31, and it says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And so when it says let man and let them have dominion, it's talking about the human race. That God made the human race, the text says, like him so that we would be his image. In the Old Testament world, you'd have, you know, pagans and they'd have a God, the God was invisible, and they would make some representative, some physical representative of that invisible God. Here in the text of the Word of God is just saying that God made us like him so that we would represent him, that he shared with us over and above everything else in creation, a special likeness. We're humans, we're not gods, we're not infinite in anything, but in a limited way, God shared with us his, some of his communicable attributes so that we're volitional, we're rational, we're relational, we're communicative, we're moral, that God made us like him so that we could have a relationship with him and be satisfied in knowing God and then representing God so that we'd be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as his representatives and those like him reflecting his glory throughout the fullness of creation. That's what God made us for. There is no higher privilege, there's no higher calling than anything in all of creation to be made like God, the God, the one God, creator God. And God made us like that. He didn't make us robots. We're real, there's real volitional, moral beings, rational. And God wanted us to have a relationship with him, which means that we have to choose God. And to facilitate that in a real covenant context, God gave us that opportunity to show our gratitude after making us king and queen over all creation and having everything. God gave us the privileged choice of submitting to him in loyal obedience by giving us a couple of commands, eat from the tree of life, eat from the tree of the garden, uh, eat from the tree of life or any tree in the garden, I should say, fully. But then he gave one negative command in Genesis 2.16. And it says this, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That is one negative command. Can I say, we have one job. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't mess all of this up. And so what do we do? We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis chapter three. It says, Satan speaking through an animal, the serpent, he tempted Eve and said, did God really say that you can't do this? In verse 5 specifically, the text says, Satan says that God has lied. You surely will not die, verse 4, for God knows, verse 5, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the question that the careful readers ask you, what do you mean be like God? They were already like God more than anything. 
and everything else in all of creation that we were made to be like God. Well, the, the text tells you what lying sense the serpent was deceiving Eve and Adam in, that you can be like God in this sense. You can be autonomous from God. You don't have to be under authority. That you can decide for yourself, not let God tell you what's good and evil. You can have that prerogative yourself. Free yourself up and you'll be like God. You'll be independent of him. That God said all this to keep you under his thumb. You can be liberated and you can be like God, determining for your own self what you decide is good and evil and what you want to do. And they ate. But what God had warned them in his covenant relationship, there were blessings and cursings. The second they ate, it says in verse 7, their eyes were open and they began to hide. Why is that? Because God said that if you eat of it, you certainly will die. And they died. There's a couple ways you can look at death in the Bible. One is just simply separation. They were instantaneously, spiritually separated from God. But now having an internal awareness of evil, they now, without God's help, would be slaves to that evil the rest of their existence. That they became self-centered, rebellious to God. Instead of delighting in this relationship, instead of loving God, they would love themselves and make themselves their own idols to pursue whatever it is that their flesh called them to. And so what happened is when the first parents, particularly when Adam sinned, he ruined all of us. Genesis 5.3 says this of Adam's son Seth, it says, and you can look at it, he was made, Seth was made in Adam's image and likeness. Every single person after Adam is created now in Adam's fallen image. So when Adam fell, he marred, as it were, the entirety of the human race. Why is God trying to make, or why is God making a new humanity? Because in Adam, the entirety of the first human race has been marred and ruined and corrupted to be rebels against God, to be slaves to our own flesh and our own lustful desires. And there's a second reason why God is making a new humanity. It says in Genesis chapter 11 that this individual problem that we have rebelling against God because our hearts no longer are satisfied in a love relationship with God. It says in Genesis chapter 11, that is a corporate identity problem as well. It says in verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, that the entirety of the human race are united together. And it says in verse 4 that they rebelled in this sense against God together collectively in a rebellious mutiny. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Instead of making a name for God, which we were created for, instead of reflecting him, which we were created for, Instead of glorifying him, which God made us and privileged to, to have, it says that this collectiveness of humanity was rebelling against God to make a name for ourselves, to glorify and exalt ourselves, and refusing to scatter and be filled and fill the earth so that God's glory would be reflected with us throughout all of creation. They gathered together in mutiny against God to exalt and make a name for themselves. And so what did God do? He scattered the, the, the whole of humanity in languages and in lands and, and under families. And he did that to keep us from this collective mutiny and rebellion against God. And the details of that are actually mentioned in chapter 10. 
You have why God scattered the nations in chapter 11 and how he scattered them in chapter 10. And this is what God did in verse 5 when he scattered us. It says, from these coastlands in 10.5, peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their own clans of families, and in their nations. And that's mentioned in verse 20. was mentioned three times in this chapter. That God separated us by language into lands by ethnic groups, by families, and we therefore became nations. And so you have China and Japan and Nigeria and on and on and on. He separated us to keep us from this united mutiny and rebellion against God. And in separating us into these groups, it didn't change our hearts. Genesis 6-5 describes the heart of us in our fallen state. It says the intents of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Our actions are evil because our thoughts are. Our thoughts are evil because our intentions are. Our intentions are evil because our hearts are corrupted. That we don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. And now all these collective groups made up of sinners are, as groups now, rebelling against God to make a name for themselves. And so you have mutiny against God, but rebellion and fighting against each other. Because our hearts are self-centered sinners, what we have turned to from God and wanting our own way as an idol, when we don't get it, we fight. We wage war. We lust and we don't have, and so we fight. So in Genesis 4, brother kills brother. Not simply homicide, but fratricide. So deep is our rebellion against God and our longing to make a name for ourselves that we are slaves to tribalism. We are slaves within our groups to see our group is better than and fight for our group, to, to be gracious and understanding and patient with our group and not patient and not understanding with other groups. It's a part of the fallenness that we're individually sinners and collectively it makes itself out in our tribalism. And I could use another word for that, our racialized tribalism that we see our own groups as better than. And so we fight. There have been wars from day one in Genesis 4 throughout the history of mankind. It could be the Hutus and the Tutsis. It could be the Bloods and the Crips. It could be the Hatfields and the McCoys. It could be the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Irish and the Protestants. It could be black and white. It could be Asian and, and black. It could be all of us in our groups fighting and waging war against each other because that's what fallen humanity has become in our sin. And so what did God do? Well, I'm glad you asked. He, he, he made us a new humanity. Praise God, somebody. That he took our broken hearts and he changed it. Jesus is saying, or, or what, what, what Galatians is, I'm, I'm in all kinds of books in the Bible now. What first Peter is saying is that Christ has made us a new humanity, not by bloodline, but by faith, with a new heart, reconciled back to God, to love God, to know God to be satisfied with God, to live for glorifying him. And in reconciling us to him, he's reconciled us to one another. He's making a new family, so I'm your brother in Christ. I know I got a good tan, don't get jealous. But he, we're all family. We're, there's one brand new united humanity that Christ has made, and that's not it. He's also, the text says, if you keep looking at our photos in Christ as Christians, we are not only a new humanity, but the text tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we're also a royal priesthood. That is a volitional definition. In the Old Testament, to be a priest, you had to be a part of a special family line. Not anymore. In order to be a priest, 
a royal priest, you just have to know Jesus and be made a part of this new humanity. And what priests do is they mediate. They stand between God and sinners. God has called us and given us a message of forgiveness. When we preach to the world around us, what we're called to preach in loose commission of the gospel in Luke 24, we tell the world that God sent his son. He died in your stead. He satisfied God's judgment against you, and he offers you pardon, forgiveness, the cleansing of all of your sins if you turn in faith and trust him. He makes you new and reconciles you to God. And guess what? That reconciles us back to one another. Our humanity is not broken, not tribally racialized fighting against each other. It makes us new. That is our vocation. And so if you're a school teacher, if you're a janitor, if you're an engineer, that is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is a mediator for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to bring people together who have been divided by sin with walls that Christ has already by his death and resurrection torn down. I'll say amen to that myself. Amen. Hallelujah. That, that, that you are a royal priest. And not only that, you're part of a holy nation. That this world is fading away with all of his lust, with all of his desires, what Christ has done already. He has raised you up so that you are seated with him right now so that you will never see death. You are no longer ever for one millisecond be separated from Christ that our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is already in heaven, that we have a citizenship. In John 8, 36 and 37, we have a king, and his name is Jesus, that, that politicians and parties don't unite, that, 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 that they don't have the power to unite. Jesus, the king, does, and he's called us to be a part of a new kingdom, and so we go out into a world divided, racialized into tribalism, fighting and waging war, and we tell them that the king has come. He's going to make a new nation that will last forever. He invites you to be a part of this eternal kingdom. By his conquest, he will grant you his victory, but he calls you to repent and believe. We now are emissaries, citizens of heaven, but ambassadors here, crying out, hurling on behalf of our king, repent and trust Jesus and become a part of this new kingdom that will never fade away. It's not black, it's not white, it's not Asian, it's not Hispanic. It is made up of a new humanity that's covered by the blood of Christ called Christians. And so we have a vocation, we have an eye. That's a part of our identity. We're a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. And lastly, we're a part of God's special possession. You see that picture? That we're special that God made us in his image and likeness, fearfully and wonderfully made, marred and destroyed by sin. But God is making all things new. So when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how we see ourselves, but this is our portrait and our picture. I had a horrifying experience when I was in the seventh grade. I'm in a math class and one of the, my fellow students flunked this math test. And uh, he looked at me and said, well, Bobby, everybody knows that white people are just smarter than black people. And I was just stunned. I was speechless. And I'm normally not speechless, as you can tell. I was just speechless. And because uh, if I wasn't the top student in the class, I'm sure I was like right next to the top student in the class. But he had gained his identity from an American culture that for 350 years said black people are slaves, 
they're not fully human, they're less than, and that culture that we work so hard to create to justify a, an immoral system of taking people made in the Imago Day, kidnapping them and selling them into slavery that we justified in various different ways, it has affected people's identity of themselves. And so when we had the Brown versus Board of Education uh, the, the court cases to, to segregate schools again, they had a doll test. And the doll test had two identical dolls. One was white and one was black. And they wanted to see the effect of America's systemic racism and that's having on people. And so they asked the kids, which doll are you? And they asked the kids, which doll is smart? Which doll is pretty? Which doll is good? And all the kids kept pointing to the white dolls. The white dolls are good. The white dolls are smart. The white dolls are, 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 are pretty and better. And then he asked at the end, which doll are you? Some kids ran out of the room crying. So, so some kids pointed to the white doll. I'm the white doll. When they did it in the South, the kids literally pointed to the black dolls and said, that's me, and used the N-word. That we gain our image of ourselves in all sorts of ways, but one thing that culture is intending to do is impress upon us our identity of ourselves. And what we need to tell the world is that Christ makes, makes sinners new, that God made us in his image and likeness, to, to cast off the lies of Satan that he uses to divide us. And we need to be engaged in it because that is vocationally who we are. We're the priests. We're the mediators. We're the ambassadors that have the message to tell the world that Jesus saves and makes a new humanity, unites us together to be satisfied once again in our God, to know him and to love him. And so what do we do? Let me say this and I'll be done. Jesus, our king, said this. If I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That all we have to do is to lift up our Savior, King Jesus. He has commissioned us in Acts 1-8 to cross from our own Jerusalems and our own Judeas to go into our Samarias and to the outermost parts of the world that we have to cross all of the boundaries. Putting aside fear, putting aside language, putting aside culture, we cross all of these barriers and we lift up our Savior who will unite a new humanity and make us one again whereas sin and Satan has ruined it and destroyed it and separated us. He is our hope. He is the key. Jesus is our answer. And he's made you to bear witness of that. Amen.